What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back here with another Midnight Myth project. Um, Just disclaimer, I'm a little under the weather. I have a sinus infection, so I'm not at 100%. I might sound a little nasally, more nasally than normal. I might sound a little gravelly, but... I'm going to soldier through and do this episode anyway. One, because if I don't do it now, I don't know when I'll do it again. And two, that's how much I love you, dear Midnight Myth listeners, that I'm going to podcast through a sinus infection with a newborn in the room. That is some pod dedication. Bonjour, mesdames et messieurs. Bienvenue à la meet de minuit. Uh, that is about as far as my French is going to go in this episode, but I had to sneak a little bit of French into the intro here because just like last week, we are returning to France. We're returning to the heart of Paris, and we're discussing another adaptation uh, from a great novel by the great French novelist Victor Hugo. So how could I resist welcoming you in French? Thank you again, Derek, for soldiering through, uh, soldiering being the opportune word here, because we're discussing Les Miserables by Victor Hugo and the musical adaptation thereof. So The Miserable. So get out <laughs> yep. your Kleenex. You're going to be crying. Hopefully you don't cry because of our podcast. But we are going to talk about one of the most gripping, dark, everybody dies tales that there is. Um, Most famously, Les Mis is known to us contemporary Americans through the musical and its insane popularity. And then it was adapted into a movie by Tom Hooper, who directed it in 2013, was it? 2012. 2012. Adopted in 2012, that's right, in 2013, Anne Hathaway won the Oscar for it. Um, we have rewatched the movie, full disclosure. I've never seen a stage production of Les Mis. Sadly, I have never seen the stage production either. I have been like a near miss on every national tour that's ever come through, and I've also almost been in it multiple times, but like I changed high schools in the middle, so I would have been in it at one of my high schools if I'd stayed there the entire time. So it's it's always slipped through my grasp, but I know the show very well from the soundtrack and, of course, from the movie adaptation. Yeah, and there's also a dramatic adaptation of the novel that's non-musical starring um, Liam Nielsen's 
you know, the Liam Nielsen's. Liam Neeson. <laughs> Liam Neeson. Yeah. I'm doing the Key and Peele version key of it. Thing, I'm being yeah. cheeky, which I have seen. It was a really long time ago, but I remember liking the movie a lot, but I have no idea if it holds up at all. Yeah, that's a good question. But that being stated, we're going to stay in France. We're going to move forward a few centuries in time from the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And we are so excited. Les Mis has been on our to-do list since day one of the podcast. Yeah, and we did do an episode very early on where we compared a lot of stories of rebellion and revolution, where it was a slight uh, you know, detour from the conversation where we talked a little bit about Les Mis. But again, we're revisiting it so that we can look into multiple facets and really understand the history and the philosophy thereof. So let's roll up our sleeves and let's ask the fundamental question, who am I? Who am I? Two, four, six, oh, one. I am the Midnight Myth Podcast. But before we do that, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so my thing is just we would love to hear from you. I may not be as active on social media these days because we're raising our child who's sitting in the room with us, uh, but I'm always there and always happy to hear from you, especially on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head to our website, midnightmyth.com, for more content and blogs. That's where you'll get a link to our Patreon or to our merch store if you have extra cash lying around and want to support us monetarily. If you cannot support us financially at this moment, that's cool. The very best thing you can do for the podcast is totally free, and that's to leave us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts, whatever, wherever you listen. It really means a lot to us if you can drop us those five stars and tell everybody what you love about the show. It helps us get out there. And if you love us, tell a friend. And if you hate us, tell your mortal arch nemesis who has been hunting you throughout the years, bent on your destruction. Good God, I was hoping you would say that. All right, so we're going to try a briefest of brief recaps. Of There's this four and a half hour movie. Nothing brief about Les Mis. So I'm going to do my best here. It may be the longest of long recaps. This movie features our main character, Jean Valjean, in prison under the rigid and ruthless prison guard Javert on the last day of his 19-year sentence for stealing a piece of bread and then running from the authorities when they confronted him. It's worth noting that the bread stolen was to feed his sick nephew, was not for himself, and Jean Valjean is labeled a dangerous man and will be on probation for the rest of his life. As he goes looking for work in France as a free man, because he's marked as a dangerous man, he is unable to find work, and he resorts to thievery and beggary. This is when he meets a priest who takes him into his uh, convent or monastery, if you will, and the priest decides he's going to share whatever he has. Jean Valjean then robs him of all of his silverware and gets caught. When he is confronted with the authorities and they bring him back to the priest, the priest says, nope. I actually gave him these things and he gives him more of his silverware and says, let this man go. But then says to Jean Valjean, you have to use this silver to become an honest man. And I have now finally saved your soul. Jean Valjean decides to take a new name. He sells the silver, presumably, and he moves to another town in France in which he sets up a factory and then becomes a mayor. And as the mayor and factory owner, he's an esteemed member, but he's doing this under an alias. Then enters the new captain of the guard that will be reporting directly to Jean Valjean in the alias, and it is none other than Javert the guard. 
While this is happening, we meet another character named Fantine, who is, works in the factory with the other women, and a scuffle ensues when the other women find out that she has a illegitimate daughter living with an innkeeper in Paris. This scuffle escalates, and Jean Valjean goes to break it up. However, at the sight of Javert, he retreats to his office and asks the foreman to handle it. The foreman, having a crush on Fantine, decides he's going to fire her because she's now, quote-unquote, spoiled with uh, the sin of an illegitimate child. And then Fantine goes into a downward spiral of epic proportions. Without any money to send back to the innkeeper, she's afraid her child will be on the street, so she sells her hair, she sells her teeth, she sells her body and becomes a prostitute. Things get even worse when she is obviously sick from all of these terrible things that have happened to her, and a potential client ends up shoving snow down her bra, and she scratches him on the face, and then Javert comes and is going to arrest her for assaulting this gentleman. This is when she confronts Jean Valjean, who's giving arms to the poor, and Jean Valjean says, nope, we're not sending her to jail because I wronged her. I'm going to send her to the hospital. This is also when Jean Valjean, my goodness, this is like the first 20 minutes of the movie. Oh, wow. This is also when Jean Valjean finds out someone, someone was mistaken as him and is about to go to prison as Jean Valjean. And if he allows this man to go to prison, this new fake alias will be, will be now his name and he will be free. He'll continue to be the mayor. He'll continue to be the master of workers. However, the lie will damn his soul. So he confesses in front of the court that this man they're going to send to jail is not Jean Valjean, that he is the prisoner 24601. He then goes to the hospital to await Javert to arrest him, in which Fantine dies. On her deathbed, Jean Valjean vows that he will protect her daughter Cosette as if she were his own. This is when Javert confronts him and Jean Valjean escapes. Long story long, he ends up taking Cosette away from the innkeepers that are keeping her who are completely crooked and dishonest, and he raises Cosette as his own daughter. Flash forward to now the 1830s, and Cosette is a young woman in which she meets a young revolutionary named Marius, and Marius is uh, a nobleman who has now decided to cut off from his noble family and join the revolution against the new king. Cosette and Marius fall in love, and at the death of General Lamarck, an advocate for the people of France, a new French revolution breaks out. They form a barricade. Jean Valjean, realizing that Cosette and Marius are completely in love, decides to go to protect Marius in the hopes that they could actually be married. And when he gets there, he discovers that Javert has been captured by the revolutionaries. Now, Jean Valjean asks the revolutionaries if he can have the life of the captured Javert, but instead of killing him, he lets him free, saying there are no conditions. You are a free man. You were wrong about me. All you ever did was your duty, and I don't blame you at all. Things do not go well for the revolutionaries as they all die. Marius, while being bleeding out, is picked up by Jean Valjean and escapes through the sewers, where they encounter that very same innkeeper who's in the sewers, presumably looking for sewer treasure. I guess that's a thing. 
People look for sewer treasure. It's Paris. Come it's on. Paris. And it's a city of love. And there's things in the sewer that the innkeeper's looking for. Meanwhile, so Marius is alive. Jean Valjean shaved him, saved him, but he does not tell Marius this. And he decides that he is going to away so that Jean Valjean's crimes cannot tarnish Cosette as she is now married to a nobleman and he wants her to have a good life. At the wedding reception, the innkeeper comes and confronts Marius, saying, I know that your daughter is Jean Valjean's, or I know that your wife is Jean Valjean's daughter. And at the day of the revolution, I saw that he murdered someone in the sewers. Not realizing, Marius now says, No, wait, that was me. He saved my life. He and Cosette leave the wedding reception. They find Jean Valjean on his deathbed. And Marius and Cosette profess their love and what a good man he is. His soul now being fully redeemed, he dies and goes to heaven. Hand in hand with Fantine and into the arms of the priest who redeemed him in the beginning. I skipped a lot in the second half uh, just for the sake of brevity. So I wanted to keep it brief because the first half went wrong. But there's your briefest of brief recaps with the master of the house and this regular Voltaire. I have to ask you a question here, Laurel. Does this, we'll talk, let's talk specifically about the movie. Came out in 2012, nominated for a bunch of awards, won some awards, including Anne Hathaway as Fontaine for Best Supporting Actress. Does this movie hold up? I mean, good question. Uh, it's one that we always ask, and it's a weird one with this movie for me because I have to say I did not care for it when I saw it in theaters. And as a musical theater uh, you know, buff and someone who, who was a musical theater professional for a little while, you know, I have a little bit of snobbery about musical adaptations that I have to admit, but I did go in seeing this movie th for the first time and walk out kind of like, what? Why would you adapt Les Mis like this? And I'll explain to you what I think the big, you know, mortal sin of the movie is. Um, but before I do that, I will say that I, I have come to appreciate the movie more over time, especially watching it through your eyes and watching you as someone who did not have familiarity with Les Mis as a musical uh, come to such a kind of touching place with it. So I do appreciate that you inspired me to watch it again and again because I do think it has tremendous merit and is really quite spectacular in many places. But I do think that the mortal sin of this movie... Hold on, before you do that, can yeah. I... You, you mentioned my journey with it. Can I say that before you give oh, the, yeah, the, the moral sin? Yeah. Just so people have some context to what you're, yeah. you're actually talking about. So I saw Les Mis. I had never seen it. I think I was homesick and it was on HBO. And I'm like, eh, this just won some Oscars. I put it on and I'm not going to lie. I freaking loved it. I thought it was so unique. I thought it was unlike anything I had ever seen. And I was completely blown away. And the whole time I'm watching it, because I did not remember the story, and nor did I remember my French, because I didn't realize that it was such a miserable story that as like deeply about human suffering in which everyone dies. So Fantine dies, I'm like, oh, that's bad. Then uh, what's the kid's name? Gavroche. Gavroche oh. dies, and I'm like Eponine. Eponine dies. Then all of the revolutionaries die. Then Javert commits suicide. And I'm just watching this and I'm like, what is this story? And then at the very end, when Jean Valjean finally dies and has some semblance of peace, I 
lost it. I had never cried so hard from a movie ever in my entire life. And I'm just like watching the end of the movie. I'm tearing up just thinking about it, bawling like I'm my son, Arthur, who didn't get his bottle. Just like (laughs) full on ugly crying, my lips like sniveling, snot dripping out of my nose, just tears just streaming. I was home alone watching it. And like the enthusiastic noob to Les Mis that I was, I went around everywhere. Have you seen Les Mis? Have you seen Les Mis? Only to find out that the Les Mis theater folk hated that movie. And a lot of critics, also film critics, really ripped that movie apart. And I thought it was... Now, I'm not going to argue that the movie is flawless, that there aren't some things about the movie that are a little odd. I think of Russell Crowe and some of those notes can't really hit them very well. You know, he's clearly the weakest uh, singer among the cast, but I still absolutely loved it. Anyway, that's the context. Go on to your mortal sin. Yeah, so it's a bold, bold directorial choice that Tom Hooper makes in this movie to have the actors sing live and to ground it in absolute realism. This movie is called Les Miserables. It's based on a book and a musical called Les Miserables, The Miserable Ones. It is a miserable story. It is sad. It is, as you said, about human suffering to the core. But here's the thing about the stage production, about like listening to the soundtrack, about going to see this on a stage, is that there is theatricality and there is some level of bombast about it that sparks joy. Uh, you know, going to see live theater and seeing the barricade built before you in a theatrical fashion that is not inherently realistic can bring a a balance of the misery and joy to uh, this story. And the movie that Tom Hooper directs is decidedly joyless. And I know, you know, it's called The Miserable. It is about suffering, but without a hint of joy in its, what, like three-hour runtime, it can be a real slog. And while I kind of respect and admire a lot of the choices that were made, I don't think they were the right ones to make for Les Mis. I think they, uh, you know, are usually pretty emotionally effective, but in a way that often leaves you really emotionally drained at the end of watching it, rather than wanting to jump to your feet and give it a standing ovation. So I think that's the mortal sin of the movie, is that it moves so far away from the theatrical context into this absolute realism that it just wants, it just almost tears apart your soul. And I want to be able to reach the end of Les Mis triumphant. Interesting thought. Can I give you a follow-up question? Yeah. Do you think a lot of that has to do with how the camera is almost like its own character, but it, it, because it moves, like the the camera in the movie is very kinetic, but it focuses intensely on people's faces. And as people move around, as they're singing and dancing, the camera's just following their faces. And even the song, One Day More, which is the big like show number right in the middle of the, the whole production, the entire camera is just on every single character's face as they sing. That if it ever just like panned out and let it feel like we were actually watching a stage that might have had more of that joy, like, oh, there's actually... 25 people singing right now. Yeah. Instead of 
individual faces just singing into the camera all at the same time. Yeah, I do think that's a choice that could have helped. I also think that seeing like, you know, and I don't even know if it's really possible to have a perfect adaptation of Les Mis on screen uh, rather than, you know, on the stage. I don't know if it's really a movie that should have been made. But there's something about seeing like Fontaine's teeth be extracted and like the real dirt and grime of the streets of Paris rather than the kind of theatrical removed dirt and grime of the streets of Paris that like we we just don't get that balance that we crave. Do I respect and admire Tom Hooper for trying it? Sure. Do I think, you know, there's a world where maybe this could have worked? Sure. Do I think it's entirely successful to make this very hyper-realistic choice with musical theater? Uh, no, it's not entirely successful. But like I said, it is something that has grown on me over time, especially watching your journey. And I do think that there are segments of it that are extremely emotionally effective. I freaking love it, and I will never apologize for it. <laughs> Good. You never should. I absolutely love it, and I think it's one of the greatest movies ever, at least of that decade, of the uh, that, that 2010s. Yeah, the 2010s. It's definitely, for me, one of the most memorable movies, and one of the movies of that decade I tend to go back to time and time again. And I also really enjoy that this movie is constantly putting its main hero, Jean Valjean, in these really big moral crossroads. Do I go back to parole or do I rip my parole card up? Do I steal from this priest or do I take their ch this priest's charity? Do I stop the fight at the factory or do I talk to Javert? Do I end up condemning a man to a lifetime of slavery under the state as a prisoner for a crime they didn't commit or do I end up admitting I am who I am and the way that this this tale is constantly putting Jean Valjean at these crossroads and how this character continually steps up in those crossroads is the way that I find inspiration in this movie is the way that I find joy that this character Jean Valjean can actually talk the talk and walk the walk as a hero. There is an innate goodness and selflessness in this man. You know, he has the ability to escape to England in this tale. He and Cosette could do that. But he knows that that will pain Cosette because she is now in love with this young man. So he decides to risk his life to save this man that will then marry Cosette and then cut himself out of her life all together. Yeah, take away the one thing that has brought him joy in his entire life. And as a new parent, I'm looking at his choice as a father and being like, that blows my mind that he was able to make that kind of choice. I think it's no secret that as soon as we see Jean Valjean, what does Javert have him do? Pick up a gigantic piece of wood and carry it on his back and move it just like Jesus did with the cross. It's no secret that he does this again as the mayor when the cart falls on someone and someone really strong has to save this man's life and he puts his shoulder under a gigantic beam of wood and picks it up. And then what does he do at the very end? He picks up Marius on his back yeah. and carries him. This is a man who is literally carrying the world on his shoulders 
in several different points in time, both metaphorically and literally. And we see him doing these, like these acts of self-sacrifice so that other people can live so that he is absolving their sins by taking them onto himself. And he's also a very religious character. He gave his soul to God as redemption, and he is going to keep that oath no matter what. And I think juxtapose that to Javert, another man who believes he is also a man of God, who believes that he is also acting out in a um, in a way that is in accordance with divine law over human law, but has a much more rigid and a much more harsh version of that that says there is no forgiveness, the wicked must be punished. You know, in, in Javert's song about the stars that he sings, he is establishing an ordered cosmology where everything must be in its place. And if a star falls, just like Lucifer, it falls in fire. And that to fall out of your place in this cosmic order is to fall like Lucifer in divine fire. And I think this is why I really get inspiration because this movie clearly says that Jean Valjean's take on the role of religion and soul and humanity is the better take on this. That it is about forgiveness, self-sacrifice, love. I mean, one of the last things that we heard seen before the final number is that last line. To love another person is to see the face of God. It's not to punish the wicked. It's not to make sure that the poor are in their place. It's not to make sure that there is this divine order that must be preserved at all costs. No, it's to love another person is to see the face of God. And in that respect, I find this movie, though grounded in realism, muck, dirt, and body fluids as it is, like blood and poop, but I still find it incredibly inspiring when I look back at that central message articulated between the theological debate of the hero and the nemesis of the hero, because I don't want to go so far as to call Javert a villain, but I do think he's the nemesis of the hero because the villain's the innkeeper, right? He's just totally selfish, selfish, doesn't believe in anything, doesn't believe in anyone. And there's a reason he starts as an innkeeper and then he ends in the sewers. Like things just get worse and worse and worse and worse for that character. Meanwhile, Jean Valjean and Javert sustain their status and position for the most part. They're able to live the lives that they're trying to live. So he's more of a nemesis and that theological argument landing on the side of Jean Valjean is super inspiring to me and gives me faith that religion can actually be a force of good in the world. Two stars keep not their motion in one sphere, as Shakespeare once said. Um, yeah, I, I love what you're saying here. And, you know, going back to our conversation last week about Hunchback of Notre Dame, there is a lot of Frollo in Javert you know, a character who is seemingly pious, outwardly pious, and is a secular authority, but who, uh, you know, deigns to this higher order that they think is absolute, but falls victim to corruption, vice, and sin within because they're not morally on the same level as the heroes like Quasimodo or uh, Jean Valjean. I also think that you hit on something absolutely correct about uh, Les Mis, which is that even though the title is about misery, 
it's really about how we overcome human suffering. It's really about the kind of indomitable human spirit, how even when you are at your absolute lowest, when it is impossible to imagine a better life, Fontaine had a dream her life would be so different from the hell she's living, but in the moment of her death, a smile crosses her face because she can see the image of her child and she gets a promise from a near stranger that he will raise her child in love. To love another person is to see the face of God. She sees the face of God at the end of her life and transcends her situation. So that's the true message of Les Mis, is that no matter how horrible your situation is, no matter how horrible your life is, you can reach inside yourself to find some inner strength. And, you know, that may be cold comfort to someone today who is in suffering, who is in crisis or is dealing with trauma, but it is inspiring to see it in characters like Fontaine and Valjean as they transcend the darkness of their situation. But when you really broadly step back and think about it, one of the great questions at the heart of any theological structure, be it Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, is to understand the existence of suffering and to rect to um, reconcile the existence of suffering sure. with the existence of God. And in the philosophy of Les Mis, we do see that articulated. And it's worth noting, though there is suffering now and there's suffering in the world now, if we look at this from a historical narrative standpoint, it's also telling us there was suffering then. The narrative of the downfall of Fantine, starting from illegitimate child working a thankless job to losing that job and then having to um, get into essentially selling her body first her teeth and her hair and then into prostitution is a narrative that while true in the mid 19th century is also fairly true today. And one of the things in particular, if we link uh, Jean Valjean to Jesus in the way that we're doing it, one of the things that, People criticized Jesus for, other religious leaders in ancient Judea criticized Jesus for, what was it? Preaching to prostitutes, going to the prostitutes and trying to convert them. And people looked at him at that time and like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to the lowest of the low? And Jesus was like, this is where I'm actually needed. And we see Jean Valjean reconnecting with Fantine doing what? Hanging out in the slums giving money to the poor and defending a prostitute from the harsh realities of the mid 19th century French law. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, there is redemption to be found in everyone, no matter how poor their circumstances, no matter how wretched they feel, there is redemption available to you. And that is through interpersonal relationships. That's through love. And I do think there's something valuable about saying it's to love another person is to see the face of God. It's not necessarily about finding the all-encompassing love or faith in God. It's about finding one other person that you can truly become selfless for and give yourself to, and by committing acts of love in the name of that person, you can see the face of God. So there's a secularity and also a, you know, a human individual kind of enlightenment perspective, I think, that's brought to that philosophy. And I think it's counter to, we have contemporary America at the very least, we have a culture and an industry dedicated to self-love and self-care. 
and love yourself, etc. And what this narrative is doing is saying, no, you yourself are less important than others. And it is to love another rather than love oneself. And I think that is a interesting thought that I carry into my meditations on this, in particular when you think of the amount of both ink and the amount of discussion around self-love and self-care. Jean Valjean beats himself up this entire time. Fantine beats herself up this whole time. Javert kills himself. You know, two other characters... Um, Oh, God, what's the kid's name? I'm blanking again. Gavroche. Gavroche and uh, Eponie both choose to sacrifice themselves for others. The entirety, the, once they realize in the revolution that it has failed, that the people have not risen, that they will not overthrow the new king, they all decide to sacrifice themselves so others can rise. I mean, one of the guys literally says, our little lives don't count at all. Because this movie is teaching it is about others and what you do for others is more important than what you do for yourself. And if we think about why does Javert do what Javert does, it is a fundamentally selfish outlook that he has. And let me elaborate on that. He believes that there is a divine order to everything and everything must have its place in it. And if something steps out of that place, it is inherently sinful and it must be punished. Great place to be when you're the one doing the punishing. It's a great place to be when you're the one that has power. Now, we do learn that he is from the gutter, and he has worked his way up, so there is some merit to the fact that he started at the lowest of the low and is now this high captain in the French army and in the French police force, but that being stated, he gets to benefit from his power and position and that's the problem with his order. That's the problem with the way that he articulates his cosmology and his religious philosophy through the law is that it is fundamentally about preserving and maintaining his own power and not about others. And when Jean Valjean rips that apart and does a true act of selflessness, when he saves his enemy's life and gives it to him under no conditions and does it simply because he doesn't blame him, Javert, Jean Valjean doesn't blame Javert for following his duty and doing what he thought was right. It cripples his entire outlook so much that he says it can only be Jean Valjean or Javert. Both can exist in the world. Recognizing that Jean Valjean's the better man, finally realizing his entire world order has been destroyed, he kills himself. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were saying about the sort of contrast between selflessness and self-love. And I think that was an interesting perspective. I certainly read it a little bit differently in terms of how Les Mis is saying that you should cultivate goodness, uh, you know, through your relationships to others. I think the contrast that I see, and I'm not saying you're wrong, I'm just saying it's a different reading. The contrast that I see is that, okay, Les Mis is about revolution. It's about a rebellion. That's a really small fraction of the story. And the idea that these characters are motivated by love of country, vive la France, uh, feels like a big part of Les Mis when you think about the whole. But when you sink it down to the actual story, it's not really about a redeeming love of country. It's not really about people fighting for uh, a greater cause. It's about people fighting for the ones they love. 
you know, we even see this in the revolutionary characters who are talking about the blood of angry men and they're talking about General Lamarck and all of these, you know, people that they're fighting for, the idea that they are the voice of the people, but also on the eve of the rebellion, they're sharing wine and saying, let the wine of friendship never say die because it's friendship that is bringing them together. It's friendship that brings Marius to their side. And after, in the morning, after the barricade is brought down and all the boys are killed, what are the women singing about as they're washing the blood from the streets? And this was really moving to me as I was holding my son watching this movie, but someone used to cradle them and kiss them when they cried. Uh, because this is, this is not about the people. This is about each person. Uh, and so that's the big contrast that I see. Uh, choosing to love individuals and to, through that love, of your child, of your wife, of your husband, of your friend, uh, through that, finding a greater love of humanity through individuals. And, okay, that's well said. And to be clear, I don't think there's anything wrong with one taking care of oneself. Of course not, yeah. Nor do I think there's wrong with the concept of self-love. But I do take philosophical issue with the industry of self-love. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do. And I do think there is a, a fine line between a confident person who is able to take care of themselves, be a productive, healthy, happy member of the world, and narcissism. Yeah, absolutely. And in particular, in America, we don't walk that line very well. No, we do not. We often confuse self-care and self-love with narcissism, and we often prop up narcissism as a virtue one should aspire to and falsely equate it to self-love. And part of that is the industry of self-love that exists that says, buy this book, watch this YouTube, you know, give me your money, and then suddenly you're going to care for yourself better than you ever have before. And most of those boil down to a very narcissistic view. The reality is, and I've learned this through history, and I do think this movie articulates it at least in a nuance, if not directly. The reality is none of us are the center of the world. Most of us will never achieve our dreams. Most of us are going to have lives that end in some sort of a defeat where we want to achieve something, but we can't. And that may not sound very inspiring, but what this movie teaches us is that doesn't matter. As long as you love someone else, as long as you try your very best, if you do your duty with honor, if you do what you think is right, and you love others along the way, if your revolution fails, it's not going to, that is not as important as learning to love, as to turn away from a life of hating. That is more important than achieving your revolution of, you know, becoming the greatest commander in the Napoleonic or the post-Napoleonic armies. That is not as important as being the mayor of a town and owning a factory. What's more important is, hey, can you put someone else's needs ahead of yours just simply because you love them and self-sacrifice for others or for the greater good? It's more important than your own individual dreams. Your own individual dreams only matter to you. But the universe is so much bigger than that. And the universe of Jean Valjean, the one thing he teaches us, he says goodbye to his daughter and chooses to die alone because he doesn't want his black mark to rub off on her. That level of selflessness as a new father was like, my goodness, 
He's never going to see his adopted daughter again. The, the thing that has sustained him is the love for his daughter. And he chooses her honor over his love. I mean, that is an act of love in and of itself. And that is really inspiring. I agree. I'm wonderful. Let's change tunes a little bit because this segment about whether it holds up went a little bit long. I'd like to talk a little bit about French history and particularly the history of the French Revolution. Vive la France, vive la Revolution. One of the things that I liked about this movie is it introduced me to an era of French revolutionary history I didn't know. We had all heard the story, the French Revolution happened, they chopped off the head of the king, Napoleon came, and then they became a a republic, right? And everybody ate cake, right? Yeah, yeah. Something about cake? It's that simple. Well, it turns out that's not true. Now, I'm going to caveat this segment with a few disclaimers. I am not an expert on the French Revolution. I've done very little in terms of my historical background in learning about this era, but I, I have learned a little bit about it. It's very complicated. Even current contemporary PhD historians, professional historians, don't always agree about things that happened in this era and in this time. It is hotly debated So if I get any details wrong, please, I apologize. I'm also going to very flippantly cover major huge things that we could do an entire podcast itself on, let alone an entire podcast episode on. But, and oftentimes, Americans really don't know this history well. This is some of the most consequential history, in particular in Western civilization, for the modern era. So in the late 18th century... King Louis the uh, 16th, he ends up uh, having some problems on his hands. The people are unhappy. There is a major, major French revolution. What we don't really know here in America is we know the story of Maria Antoinette and the king getting their head chopped off and that sparking the reign of terror. But there was an intermediary period in which the king was still the king and a national assembly was formed, like a parliament or a congress, if you will, And there was a new constitution that said that the French assembly and the king would share power. Think of it similar to how it worked at the time in England. There is a king who has a lot of political authority, but it's shared with the English parliament. This actually fell apart when it came to light that the king of France was conspiring with the the Austro-Hungary Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, who was the... Um, uncle of Maria Antoinette, the king's wife, the queen of France, they were conspiring to have the Austrian Empire come into France, dispose and arrest and kill the National Assembly and reinstill the king of France as the absolute monarch. Not a good look. Now, absolute monarchy is the system of government French, the French had before this revolution where the king is all of the government. What the king says is law. There is no checks on the king's authority whatsoever. When this happened, both the king and the queen were executed. This then led to the reign of terror. And the reign of terror, we all have heard the stories, is when that assembly went to anyone that was against the revolution and started lobbying off the heads. Now, there are a few figures I want to point out here. One is Louis Philippi. Now, Louis the Philippi, Philippi, I'm probably saying this wrong. Louis Philippe. Louis Philippe, thank you. Yeah. You, you know your French better than me. So Louis Philippe, he was related to the Bourbons. The Bourbons 
That is the family that were the last dynasty where King Louis XVI was related. So he is distantly related. He is a noble person, and he joins with the French Revolution. However, when they lob off the head of the king, Louis-Philippe decides that he can no longer support the revolution, and he goes into exile. And when I say he goes into exile, he did stuff like beg, sleep in barns, go by a fake name, get a job as a tutor. Meanwhile, Napoleon ends up rising to power in revolutionary France with the vacuum of the king and the reign of terror proving that this new republican form of government wouldn't work. A Corsican army talented general known for being short rose to prominence and we have Napoleon who is one of the most interesting historical figures of all time. Long story, very short. Napoleon ends up going into exile he ends up being disposed of power, especially after this happens to him twice, after the Battle of Waterloo, and the Bourbons are reinstituted as the new monarchs, co-sharing power with a national assembly. So we have the return of the kings of France. The same family that got lobbed off are now the kings. And everyone's thinking things are probably going to settle down here. Well, this guy, Louis Philippe, Louis Philippe, pardon me, I keep saying it wrong, at this point in time was in America, hanging out with figures like James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington, and learning about what a functional Republican government could look like. He is invited to return back to France, and there's a small revolution. The king at the time is Charles X. Charles X ends up abdicating the throne after the revolution and wants his grandson to take over, and the National Assembly's like, nope, we want a Republican-oriented monarch. So they appoint Louis Philippe. Louis Philippe is insanely popular. Why? He was in America. He slept in barns. He always supported the revolution, but at the heart believed that you should have a strong monarch with a National Assembly, and they should co-share power. This is the perfect solution to the problem. The problem of what type of French society are we going to have? How is France going to govern itself as a modern, powerful world player in the world that's going to have Republican principles but a strong executive? So everybody is into this dude. There's only a one problem. The French economy tanks. The French economy tanks. There are major crop failures. There are plagues. The French people become completely and totally um, 100% incest with this new king who, right or wrong, gets blamed for all of these problems. Now, there's another character, and this one you'll recognize from Les Mis, Jean-Maximilien Lemarck, General Lemarck. Now, General Lemarck rose to prominence under Napoleon. He was a Napoleonist. He was a Bonapartist, pardon me, that was the term they used back then. And he was a fantastic general. He started from humble beginnings, rose through the ranks. He did have some noble blood in his background. And after the Napoleonic Wars, is a member of the National Assembly and dedicates his intellectual time, dedicates his mass fortune that he accumulated to support Republican principles and becomes seen as the voice of the people in the National Assembly. This is somebody who was advocating for things like land reform, 
price control, so bread could be afforded, affordable. The end of what's called seigneurial dues, which are the taxes that French had to pay, French peasants had to pay to their nobles. He's advocating for a republic with co-sharing power between an executive and a legislative branch. He comes from the military, so you can't call the dude a coward. He's tough as nails. Problem is, in 1832, he died. And he died of a plague that was ravaging through Paris. And this is what sparked the Parisian June Rebellion, which is the rebellion that we see. At the funeral of of Jean-Maximilien Lamarck, things get out of hand, barricades are formed, a rebellion happens, and it is violently put down, just as we see in this movie. It ends up not working whatsoever. Long story now, long. Flash forward to 1848. There is another rebellion happening against uh, Louis-Philippe I, and he ends up stepping down, and the Second Republic is formed. King Louis-Philippe I will be the last king of France in its history, at least up till today. Hopefully they don't go back to a monarchical form of government. But there is a little interlude, because it's French history, where after he steps down, a president is named in the National Assembly, and this is Napoleon Bonaparte III, a relative of Napoleon, who then proclaims himself president for life, then declares himself emperor and has absolute power. So not a king, but an emperor who then ultimately also gets deposed. Other things I've learned, the current constitution of France is the fifth constitutional republic they formed. It's their fifth republican constitution. And I forgot to jot down the date, but it was in the mid 20th century um, after World War II. So the current constitution that you have in France is very new. And it's their fifth time they've tried a Republican form of government. Um, They've been trying this for a long period and for a long time. Now, let me wrap up this very long segment here. What does this mean as it pertains to the subject at hand, which is Les Mis? Les Mis is a type of historical fiction that takes a historical backdrop, but does not actually talk about historical figures. Consider HBO's Rome or John Adams. These are stories of of actual historical figures like Caesar, John Adams, George Washington, Mark Anthony. They are characters, and it's dramatizing these historical events. This is a setting, a historical setting, in which then we see fictional characters operating in the setting. It is a fantastic way, if there's a period of history that inspires you, that you want to learn about, while also telling a good, gripping drama. It also can do things like inspire people to want to learn more. I didn't know until I saw Les Mis that there were kings after Louis XVI got his head chopped off. I thought that was the end. There was Napoleon, but there were no more kings. They killed the king. Not so. There were other kings of France after that. It also tells us Republican form of government is really, really hard. The idea that you can have a system of laws without one person at the top in which power can be shared and transferred from one person to another is not an easy thing to do. And at the heart of Les Mis, 
we are seeing the trials and tribulations after decades, near a century of failed state after failed state. And when states fail, human suffering does increase. There are these amazing stories that can happen of people like Jean Valjean's, but far more are the stories like Fantine's when you see a state that cannot actually properly govern itself. Yeah, a government, a a democracy or a republic is not a given. And it makes you think so much because the histories of the United States and France at this time are so inextricably tied. We were allies, we were there for each other, then we weren't so much there for each other, uh, but we were inspired by each other. The philosophy that was crossing the ocean and then the inspiration of the American Revolution on the French is, you know, something that cannot be ignored. Uh, And it is really kind of remarkable that the American democracy has been as successful as it has, and it hasn't been 100% successful. There are problems, but it at least has sustained. We haven't had to trial and error our Constitution over and over and over again. We've just added amendments. So that's a really good point that you make. I want to thank you for all of that historical context, because it also lays the groundwork to understand why Victor Hugo wrote this novel, because he was very much writing in a similar environment, because as you'll see through just looking at the history, France is kind of always on the brink of revolution between the 18th and 19th centuries. It is, again, trial and error. We're trying again and again to achieve what we want, which is a Republican government. And some of those rebellions fail. The June Rebellion fails miserably. But then in 1848, the springtime of nations, where there are several rebellions across Europe, that in many places is much more successful. It produces much more uh, you know, lasting results and consequences. And that happens to be the very moment that Victor Hugo is writing Les Miserables. So this is the most famous French novel there is. We talked about how important Hunchback was as a novel for uh, you know, inspiring the nation and bringing back Gothic architecture and bringing back a love of conservation, especially of Notre Dame de Paris. And it was a literary like blockbuster, but this is Hugo's kind of magnum opus. He was already a literary superstar. He was the national poet. He was also a member of the government. He was a member of the assembly. So he starts writing this in 1845, but he doesn't publish it until 1862. So there is, if you look at the manuscript, a 12-year gap during the writing of the novel where he simply stops. And that's in 1848. You can see where the manuscript ends and then begins uh, on different paper. So you know that's where he stopped. And the moment he stops writing is in February 1848 as he's just completing the section where Marius goes to the barricades to fight. He decides he's going to go and join his brothers. Meanwhile, at that exact moment, revolution is once again breaking out on the streets of Paris. These are the revolutions of 1848, the springtime of nations. And at this time, because Victor Hugo is serving in the French government, he's called upon to organize troops to dismantle the barricades. So if you were wondering how he knows how Javert and his troops dismantle the barricades in the book and in the musical, it's because Victor Hugo has done it himself. 
And this is a traumatic event for him to go out and put down a rebellion and to see these children fall in the streets. So it really changes him radically. And he ends up finishing Les Mis 12 years later in political exile after a very public breaking with the right-wing leader, Louis Napoleon, Napoleon III, this man who installed himself as a president and seemed to be very pro-republic, and then started leading an anti-constitutional, anti-republican dictatorship for the most part. So Hugo became very vocal about no longer supporting him and was sent to political exile, where he finished writing this novel. So what it shows you is that there is no, there's no assumption of peace. There is no assumption of, okay, we've done it. We have fixed France and we now have a perfect nation. There is always this yearning for a better world, for a better form of government, for a better life, for a better economy, for a more fair and equitable country for all people. And that is reflected through the number of successful and unsuccessful rebellions and revolutions in France through the 18th and 19th centuries. I think one of the things that we see, and one of the reasons that we're we're writing about this unsuccessful rebellion, is that it is sandwiched between these two kind of greater historical moments, the French Revolution, which we all know the story, and the springtime of nations, which was much bigger in 1848. And this one is easy to forget, but these people mattered because they were looking to history. They were looking to the American Revolution. They were looking to the French Revolution and saying, we are the younger generation and we can be like them. We can be as powerful. We can, you know, there was a time we killed the king. We can be like them. And they failed. But they were still the inspiration for the next generation who came in years later and were much more successful. So there is this continuum of history And this reflection that, yeah, these were somebody's babies. Somebody used to cradle them and hold them when they cried. And someone else will sacrifice themselves in the future. And all of these people mattered to somebody. And you know, you mentioned at one point a cross-comparison to American stability. While these things are happening in Paris, 1830s, America is planting the seeds for its own near destruction over the issue of slavery and the most bloody conflict in the history of a hemisphere of the earth was about to commence and break out was just 30 years away as we reconciled with the own contradictions inherent in our Republican form of government, which penned all men are free with a caveat, with a little asterisk, except for the ones we've enslaved. So even as such, as we look at that turbulent time in France, we Americans can't sit here. Of course not, yeah. You know, sipping uh, sipping a a martini being like, "Ah, we figured out the Republic. No, at this very time, we were tearing ourselves apart. And that hole of tearing ourselves apart in America has still yet to been healed. And we are still living under that horrific shadow and the sin of slavery and the contradictions of then the racist society that was built out of the end of slavery. So I don't think this is a cross comparison to me where America got it right and France got it wrong. We have our own blood on our hands too. And it is just as messy and just as turbulent. And in many ways, at least from raw body counts, a lot higher 
when we look at our civil war versus things like the reign of terror, the June rebellion, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, what else you got? I love the, this period of, of history. Me too. Yeah. I love learning about it. We are seeing the, the seeds of modernity being planted the concept and ideas that would form the world as we live in it today, for better or for worse, its strengths and its weaknesses are being planted at this time. And what Victor Hugo and then the musical Les Mis is able to do from that is tell a gripping personal story about one man's fight for his salvation and how he ultimately redeems himself and does it through love is a beautiful way to tell this great historical epic. This is a complex and weird and bizarre time of human history. And here we have some of the best music and narratives that come out of it. And I'm just so thankful we here at The Midnight Myth get to talk about it. Do you have a favorite song from Les Mis before we close? One day more. I was hoping one of us would sing before the end. And do you have a favorite character? Like if you if you were uh, you know an actor and you could play any role in Les Mis, which one would you play? Javert. I totally knew you were going to say that. Like you're you're a Javert. You're not a Jean Valjean. You're a Javert. Yeah, I I one hundred percent. I connect very much to that character, though not a hero. Yeah. I really love his journey, and um, I also really like his roles and his songs, too. Yeah, I'm, I mean, Stars is a villain song, and it is, like, some of the most beautiful music in the musical. Um, if I were in the show, I can guarantee you I would be cast as Madame Tenardier. It's just a total given. As much as I would love to play Fantine, uh, I would be, be Madame Tenardier. I've always been a character actor. And probably my favorite song is Master of the House for do that not, reason. Do not forget my name. Do not forget, forget me. My, do not forget my face. Yeah, that, I'm to- that's totally me. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, there's a reason this is the second longest running musical of all time and the longest running West End musical. People love it, consider it one of the greatest pieces of musical theater ever. Uh, it's based on an incredible story. It's based on incredible history and philosophy. And it has been wonderful to talk about it with you, Derek, and with our sleeping baby boy in my arms. Uh, and until next time. Be kind. Vive la France. One day more. 